0: This is the 50th New Zealand Christadelphian Bible School. Our third period speaker is Brother John Popel on growing closer to God. The subtitle for today is Give to the Poor. This is the third talk in the series. And the introductory reading for this talk is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Brother John.
1: It's all right. Oh, hello. <laughs> oh, it's gone again. Oh, well. Well, the, the light's gone, but the sound is still there. That's all we need. <laughs> Tentatively, good evening. <laughs> now, this evening, oh, I knocked that forward. I'm aware that uh, some of you have been on a nice, pleasant stroll. Others of you have been on a strenuous hike to the pillars of Hercules, albeit son's pillars and son's Hercules. But uh, either way, that being the case, bodies are a little more tired, and uh, as serendipity or providence has had it, this talk is probably a little bit shorter than the others. So I think that's appropriate for uh, our slightly more exhausted state. Give to the poor. The first talk, we looked at Ruth. The second talk, we looked at Jacob. This one is actually harder to fit into that simple let's look at a Bible character and track his or her progress. We're going to be bouncing off a command very much given from John the Baptist and later ones from Jesus. But if we're really watching the progress of anyone, perhaps in this talk we're watching the progress of ourselves. Having looked at the lives of others, we bring this a little closer to home. This talk was uh, originally... um, asked for, requested at the Cambodian Bible School a few years ago, and under this idea of how can we grow closer to God, and these are the very early thoughts that I had. It was 2011, I think, and uh, thereabouts, and I had the opportunity to go to Hawaii, which was very nice, uh, vaguely on sort of church business, you might say, Um, but at one point I had about four hours to myself before I was going to meet up uh, with the rest of the brothers and sisters. And uh, I took myself off to the beach, since it was a tiny island and the beaches are lovely. And I lay on the beach and I thought, well, this is great, (laughs) this is lovely, but I wonder if I can be using this time profitably as well. And so I prayed and I said to uh, to God, uh, you know, I'm trying to develop thoughts that would be useful for myself and thereby extension to others on how to grow closer to the Father, closer to you, since I was praying, and... I'm receptive, I'm receptive, I'm listening. Speak to me. I I don't hear words or see visions, but these types of prayers have been successful before, and within seconds, I wasn't even surprised, I began to hear a dialogue, and a few minutes later, I took a photograph of those who were speaking, and they're shown just there. And though I never met these people, it seemed clear from their dialogue that one was a father and the other was a sun, which was, of course, ideal. And they're out there in the water. The water temperature's probably about 25 degrees. It's just delightful, and they're just splashing around. But in actual fact, it became fairly clear that the father was trying to teach the son how to swim. And from what I could observe, the son's ability to swim was already pretty good. So it was a pretty relaxed time, and the son was swimming quite proficiently in any event, but the father was still giving tips and advice and strategies. And this is how the game worked. The son would be sent away from the father, probably only as far as here or maybe a little bit further, and then the father would call out a swimming style. breaststroke front crawl, whatever. And then the son would have to perform that swimming stroke to get all the way back to the father without his feet touching the ground. And as I say, he was doing very well. He didn't really have any difficulties. But there was one point at which the son did have some difficulties. There was one stroke that he just wasn't particularly comfortable with. And it was very educational. I wonder if you can guess what that stroke was and why. I'm sorry? It was Butterfly would, would be the most mechanically complex. But being that he is young and limber, unlike myself in every respect, he did that quite well. It was the backstroke, I heard that called out. And can you imagine why he had difficulty with the backstroke? He couldn't see his father. And he he didn't seem to have physical deficiency in performing the stroke, but it was evident, (laughs) astonishingly, that he became nervous because he couldn't see his dad as he was trying to navigate from just from here to there, up to his father. And I thought, how astonishing is that? It was fairly obvious his dad hadn't gone. My dad probably would have done, but that's a different story. (laughs) Uh, But his dad hadn't left. And in fact, his dad was quite commonly calling audio encouragement to the son to keep going. And he needed to do it more whenever it was backstroke, but not at the other times. And you've already deduced why. Because he couldn't see his father. So the son felt reassured by the presence of the father as long as he could see him. The son felt close to the father when the father was visible, yet the father was close whether or not the son was doing backstroke and therefore sort of looking at the sky. And I thought, what an interesting lesson. I've never seen a direct manifestation of the person of God, and I imagine you haven't either. And so perhaps it's understandable that we, like this little boy, every now and again, will become downhearted or disconcerted or simply anxious my dad really there? And yet, we've had so many occasions in our lives when we knew he was there. Do we think he just left in the interim? That cannot be. So this little boy's struggles seem to mirror our own in that respect. That the moment the vision was taken away, he became worried. Not panicked, particularly, but a little bit worried. And so there was the assurance that I thought that that whilst I was almost not critical of the boy, but I was thinking, how can you worry that your father's gone when you saw him 15 seconds ago? Then I thought, that's what God's telling me. Why are you ever anxious that I've suddenly left, given that you've had so many experiences when you knew I was close by? Why would I have wandered off? That's not what I do. I'm a better father even than this father, and he didn't wander off either. And the more I watched them, the more I appreciated that. And then the more I began to think about the father's feelings too, having focused first upon the son. The father, quite frankly, was simply having a great time. He was loving it. He was loving having this son time, away perhaps from the rest of the family, just some, some daddy, daddy son time. But part of the reason that he was enjoying it was clearly because the son was doing what he was told. It was the father's style of game. But imagine if the father had said, okay, son, this time swim back out to where you go and let's do some breaststroke. And the son swam out there and then just walked out of the sea and started building sandcastles. And saying, dad, oh, this swimming game is rubbish. I want to build sandcastles. Would the father stop loving the son? No, of course not. But would the father have the same degree of enjoyment in that swimming time that he'd clearly planned, if the son decided to build sandcastles instead, he would probably be a little bit wounded, a little bit hurt, no big deal, but a little less fun. The father felt close to the son because they were working together on the father's plan. So the closeness between the father and son was maintained by the son's obedience to the father's plan. I'm sure there was no great plan of wrath or retribution if the son ever decided to do something different, that's not how this father seemed to operate. How much less, then, is that how our fathers plans to operate. Nevertheless, as long as they played the father's game, the father was as joyful as the son was. And in the years that have elapsed since, not too many, I guess, just four, I've seldom seen a better example than the one I prayed for and saw 18 seconds later, Watching the Father and the Son, enjoying their time being close together. The lessons from this are obvious. They're spelled out on the screen as they stand. We can be closest to the the Father when we're cooperating with His plan. That brings Him pleasure and enjoyment. So, okay, let's get closer to God then. It's not a swimming lesson. So what are we supposed to do in practical, tangible terms? Luckily, this question exists in the Bible, and we've taken, thanks, uh, Brother Ant, uh, the very reading that gives us the answer. John the Baptist explains, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's still an abstract answer. What do you mean, says the crowd? Well, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Don't collect any more than you are required to, he says to the tax collectors. And to the soldiers, he says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your wages. Does that make sense? Have you got that? Got it? Good. You sure? Because now I'm going to test you. So, you said you had it. John the Baptist said six things. Go. Be content with your wages. It's, ma- it's amazing. That always comes to mind first. That's number six. <laughs> number six. Good. We got number six. Keep going. Okay, no violence. Bikes. I heard that. That was, I think, number five. As what? Two, two shirts. That was number one. Excellent. Two shirts. Give away one. <laughs> Someone just shouted food. Are you hungry? Let's <laughs> just go uh, there. <laughs> <laughs> share your food. Absolutely. So same thing with food. That was number two. So we've got one, two, five, and six. What was three and four? Be good to someone. Um, well, that's included in that. Um, that's not specifically three and four, but I'm sorry, there were voices back there I didn't pick up. Don't gather more than you should. Don't, more than you should. Don't take more money than you should. That was number three. We're just missing number four. Don't Perfect. It's very similar to number three, but yes, it was different. Don't extort money. Excellent. We have all six. John the Baptist said six things. Firstly, about shirts. But let me summarize that as saying take care of the poor. That said if you've got two shirts, give to the man who has none. The second one was about sharing your food. Let me summarize that as take care of the poor. If someone doesn't have enough food and you have spare, give it away. Number three was don't extort money. Excuse me, no, it was no, no it wasn't. That was number four. Number three was don't, you tax collectors, take more money than you have to. Don't create more poor. Take what you're supposed to take, but if you take more as well, you're going to make more people poor than already are. Number four to the soldiers, do not extort money. Don't create more poverty. Number five, don't abuse your authority with threats of violence. And number six, don't be greedy. So John the Baptist actually said, take care of the poor, and in case you weren't listening to number one, take care of the poor. He said, don't create number p- more poor. And in case you weren't listening, I'll say it again, don't create more poor. Don't abuse your authority and don't be greedy. What summary shall we find for all of these six? I'll just say, take care of the poor. That's an interesting answer, isn't it? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What do you mean? Take care of the poor. How direct and explicit is that? Now... The idea that God wants us to take care of the poor is new, I believe, to none of us. We all knew that. I knew that. We're all familiar with that wonderful verse in James that says pure religion and undefiled before the Father is this, to look after the fatherless and and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unsullied from the world. These are well-known words. But I wonder if you were like me of a few years ago, You won't be aware, or I wasn't aware, of of how extreme and how forceful and how dramatic the commands in the Bible to give to the poor are. They're not hysterical in any means, but the, the actual degree of severity that that command comes upon us may be more surprising than you've anticipated. And I don't mean that in a threatening sense. I mean that also in an encouraging sense as to how much it changes us. So says Jesus, and him we can trust. Let's look at some of these scriptures, and you might find this command, the simple command, take care of the poor, actually presented in a much more powerful light than you'd anticipated, even though it's right there on the page and always has been. That was my experience anyway. It may be yours. How do you get treasure in heaven? If you'd have stopped me on the streets a few years ago and just said, okay, you read the Bible, how do you get treasure in heaven? Here's what I would have said. I would have said, well, treasure is where your heart is. If you care about the things that are in heaven, the principles of God and the plan of God, that is where your treasure is. That is your treasure in heaven. And if you care less about material things that are on earth, you've transferred your treasure from earth to heaven. That is how you get treasure in heaven, and that is how you please God. And what do you think? But I think that's a pretty good answer. Well done, me. (laughs) But that's not what Jesus said. It's simply not what he said. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will then have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You get treasure in heaven by giving to the poor. That's not an intuitive answer. It's not even particularly a logical answer. But it's what Jesus said. So we can trust that it's true. We gain treasure in heaven by giving to the poor. I didn't realize that the promise of giving to the poor had such a rich reward in quite that language. There's a wonderful comment. Occasionally we can knock this rich young ruler as if he was some sort of materialistic guy who just wasn't good enough for discipleship. He was obviously shocked by Jesus' response and, and not able to comply with it in the immediate moment. But there's something very beautiful in what the young man says. Right there remember the context. Jesus says, keep the commandments. This young man isn't a legalist. If he is, he'd have said, check, 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 done it, finished, I've won. He could go, check, 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 I've kept the commandments, but I'm aware something's missing. Something still isn't right. He's not claiming to be sinless, none of us are. But he said, I've kept the commandments, and yet he was spiritually perceptive enough to know I'm still not inherently godly. And so that's, I think, why, as one of the translations or one of the gospel records has it, Jesus looked upon him and loved him. A man who knew, even after he'd kept the rules he'd been told, he still hadn't grown close enough to God as he would like to have done. That's one example Here's another interesting one. Becoming clean on the inside. How do you become clean on the inside? You asked me that a few years ago, and I will say, well, look, try and contain your thoughts on those things which are themselves clean. That wonderful verse from where is it? Philippians. Think on these things. Whatsoever be right, whatsoever be noble, whatsoever be true. That's the way we can become clean on the inside. Another great answer. I'm doing well. But it's not what Jesus said. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything, both outside and inside, will be clean for you. We become clean on the inside by feeding the poor. It's not intuitive, it's not logical, but it's what Jesus said, and we can trust it. So there's some wonderfully powerful language, much more powerful than I had anticipated, on the rewards, and therefore the encouragement for us to give to the poor. Do not think at any time I'm preaching salvation by works. Of course I'm not. We are never worthy of the kingdom. and We can only enter it by God's grace. But nevertheless, the encouragement to be active and give to the poor comes very strongly from these words of Jesus, more strongly than I'd previously realized. That's the positive side of things, let me turn it around and let's look at the more negative side of things. That is to say, let's look at what happens to those who didn't give to the poor. The sin of Sodom, a wonderful photograph, this, uh, a photograph of the remains now uh, relatively confidently identified as, uh, uh, well, actually Gomorrah, but uh, same, same sort of area. And we find what then was the sin of Sodom that, that precipitated the destruction the prophet Ezekiel explains, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, actually there are five things. Do we know what they are? I think we probably do. Can we do them? Yeah. Right, that was number two. They were, they were as um, you know, the modern colloquialism, they were fat and happy, or <laughs> overfed and unconcerned. That was number two, yes. Any others? Fun fun. Pride, absolutely. In fact, I think that really shows up twice. I'll give you two for that one. I'm sorry? I'm they were abundance of idleness. I think right, I think you're 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 saying the same thing as as brother Warwick said that's in a different translation that same part of number 2 the one that was overfed and unconcerned idle and, and wouldn't get up and help anyone. Any other ideas? We're missing two. They were immoral. They did detestable things, it says. Yes, that was the last one. We're missing one. Ironically, the title of the talk. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) I thought that was the easiest one. There we go. (laughs) They were arrogant. They were overfed and unconcerned. That comes out in a variety of different ways. I think that's what Brother brother Warwick uh, and Sister were, were remembering. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty, which sounds to me very similar to the first one. And they did detestable things before me. Not doesn't specify what those detestable things were. Um, They did a variety of detestable things, but whatever is specified there. Therefore, says God, I did away with them as you have seen. Those five reasons. And may I suggest to you that actually number one and four are pretty much the same, and in fact number two and three are pretty much the same. So probably only really three reasons. Uh, This one here, this double reason here, they themselves fed themselves to the point of being satiated. I will suck in my stomach for the next three minutes of this talk. Uh, (laughs) And were therefore unconcerned with helping those who didn't have enough, which sort of segues neatly into the uh, not helping the poor and needy. So in actual fact, a substantial proportion of the reason that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed was because they didn't help the poor. That's not immediately apparent from Genesis chapter 19. And when you read about the destruction in Genesis chapter 19, you're more inclined to surmise that it's to do with the, the violence and the rape and possibly even the homosexuality that was, that was going on there, that, that uh, big uh, immoral backdrop. But when Ezekiel actually lays out the re- reasons from God through Revelation later, we find out it's not exactly what you picked up from Genesis 19, and was, to a good part, actually concerned about the fact they wouldn't help the poor. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah partly because they didn't help the poor. That's interesting. This one is even more astonishing. We're off the topic of giving to the poor briefly. Briefly, We're going on to the topic of uh, something even more unsettling, the idea that uh, the Israelites, in their foolishness, would occasionally follow... Um, the practices of the Ammonites uh, who actually sacrificed their children in the fire and burned them as sacrifices to God. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Will you defile yourselves the way your fathers did and lust after their vile images? When you offer your gifts, the sacrifice of your sons in the fire, you continue to defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. Am I to let you inquire of me, O house of Israel? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will not let you inquire of me. Think about what that means. I will not let you inquire of me. What does that mean? In modern terms, in my language, that means I will not hear your prayer. Right? That's what it means. And fair enough for an offense so utterly detestable. In fact, it's so detestable not only to God, but also, luckily, to our culture, it doesn't even come into our minds. It's almost like this is now becoming an abstract and unnecessary warning. No one in their right mind in this culture thinks of, well, perhaps for a few teenagers, but, but uh, thinks of sacrificing their children in the fire. And the punishment for that is that God won't hear their prayer. But guess what? the same punishment is given to the one who won't help the poor. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out, and I will not answer him. Now, why is that interesting? It's fairly obvious why that's interesting. If the penalty that God gives out is the same, then at some level, to God's thinking, the crimes must be comparable. If it's the same penalty... It must be the same magnitude of crime. So God's saying, well, setting fire to your sons and killing them, burning them to death as some sort of sacrifice to God, and not giving to the poor, yeah, that's about the same crime in my eyes, says God. That's pretty astonishing. God won't hear the prayers of those who sacrifice children or won't give to the poor. So that's what I mean, really, when I was saying I was trekking through scripture, just following this idea of our encouragement to give to the poor, how incredibly dramatic and severe the cases were in both the positive and the negative instances. Let's just summarize them. We'll start with the negative so that we can finish with the positive. If we don't give to the poor, says the Proverbs, our prayers won't be heard. That's true in the Proverbs and also in Isaiah 58. I wonder if Brother Anthony, do you have enough light there to read? I think you do. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could read for us Isaiah 58 and verses 6 to 9. Listen particularly for the last verse, or follow along if you can. Isaiah 58, verses 6, 7, 8,
0: and 9. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Then shall the light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So those verses are expressing the same thing in the positive sense. When you do bring, break the shields of, shackles of oppression for those who are poor, then your righteousness will spring forth as the morning. Sodom was destroyed, partly because they did not give to the poor. Those are the negative examples. Now let's transition happily into the positive examples. Giving to the poor is the way we become clean on the inside, says Jesus. Giving to the poor is the way we gain treasure in heaven, says Jesus. And there's an even more startling one than that, found in the Psalms. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. To cause an everlasting, enduring righteousness, we merely freely scatter our gifts to the poor. So then, Why also give to the poor? This is a nice conceptual way to think about it. I think about God and I think about me. The distance between us is so vast it's silly to put them on the same screen. But I have nothing. I am abjectly poor in all things compared to my God. I think it was Christian who put it articulately from the scriptures who said, I don't even control the next breath that I'm going to take into my nostrils. Job said something similar. He says, God, you give me one breath at a time. I'm paraphrasing, so that, you know, I just suck in one breath, and I live for that moment, and I rely on you for the next moment. And God gives me everything that I need. Not perhaps everything that I want, but everything that I need. Why, then, do I give to the poor? Well, in some very limited sense, in a sort of a socioeconomic sense, there are people who are abjectly poor compared to me. And I, at least in socioeconomic terms, am very rich compared to some that I meet, even in California, who have absolutely nothing. So if I give to the abjectly poor, why then, I'm enacting the same role that God does every second of every day for me. So in giving to the poor, God is able to see his reflection in us. That's how we grow closer to God because God is constantly giving to the poor, and when we learn and get excited about doing the same thing, we take up the same image of God. When we think about the image of God, what particular verse might come to mind? Mm, absolutely. Genesis 1, verse 26. And God made man in his image. And we're inclined to think about that as a historical observation. God made man in his image. But I wonder if it's appropriate to view that sentence as more of a mandate than an observation. In other words, you are man. Now it's your job to get into the image of God. And by giving to the poor, we take on that image. So I think that's as much a mandate as it is a historical fact. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, You are not to be like that, says Jesus. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. This is how we prepare for the kingship that our Lord is happy to give us in that kingdom age. As part of my work as a a physicist, I uh, drive forklift trucks. Surprisingly, we have heavy equipment needs to be unloaded at the lab sometimes, and I also occasionally machine parts. I'm not a particularly skilled machinist, but I am a trained and qualified machinist to make parts on a mill or a lathe. So, I work on a mill and I make parts, rarely. I drive a forklift truck, rarely. Now, in order to drive the forklift truck, I needed to be trained. Big surprise. In order to work on the mill, I needed to be trained. My training on the mill had nothing to do with driving forklift trucks. And my training to drive forklift trucks had nothing to do with operating on the mill. Now I haven't said anything surprising yet, I hope. (laughs) So then, what is Jesus saying? If you're going to be kings later, serve now. Why? Why do job A in practice to do job B? Why drive a forklift truck to learn how to use the mill? Why should I serve now if I'm going to be a king later? And there's only one possible answer. Because I'm not going to be a king later in the way that I'm thinking of king. I learn to serve now because I'm going to serve later. And that's what Jesus means when he says king. The one who serves. Not because those who serve now will rule later but because serving is the true and proper way to rule. Just as a parent rules their child by providing everything that they need. Perhaps the best example is God. I love the book of Job. Uh, I had the privilege to share thoughts uh, on the book of Job with you here five years ago, standing on this uh, very spot. And therefore, I've paraphrased wildly from Job 38 some of the things that God says. God says, I am shepherd to the stars, chef to the lions and ravens, and midwife to the mountain goats. You can investigate the passage for yourself to see that as, he speaks in great metaphor. He says, the stars, I keep them in, I'm going to paraphrase quite extensively, he says, I keep them in my garden shed during the day. When the night time comes, I go drag them out of the shed and I put them all, I lead them all into the right place. He says, I guide them where they need to go every night. What a Beautiful metaphor. The lions and the ravens, they get hungry. I feed them. I find their food. I hear them making noise of uh, hunger, and I attend them, and I feed them. I suppose technically you could feed the raven to the lion and solve the problem, but that's, you know, God is more merciful than that. And the mountain goats. He said, I've learned to recognize the cry they make when they're about to give birth. And when that mountain goat is halfway up the cliff face, who is it who hikes up there? to go and deliver that baby goat. That's me, says God. I get my staff and I hike up the mountain, and I deliver that baby goat. I rule this universe because I serve this universe, because it is my pleasure to give life and breath to all things as I will. So as we learn to serve, it changes us. We develop God's trait of loving service, because the proper way to rule is the way to serve. As an aside, I, at the same lab where I work, he retired very recently, but I had a very eccentric friend, whose name was Tom, and he understood this principle very clearly. He would describe himself as a Christian Buddhist and other such (laughs) insane contradictions, but anyway, he was a lovely man, still is, and uh, he uh, he understood the idea of rulership through service. And so he'd be walking along, and we'd say, Tom, don't do this again. And he'd be walking along with a new director of the lab. And the lab is about 2,000 people, and Tom and probably myself are the lowliest of all. And he's walking alongside with the director, and he'd say, so this is, this is your place? This is your lab? You think this is yours? And the director would say, well, yeah. And Tom would say, well, why don't you pick up the trash? We just walked past a piece. And that's what he would. And the director didn't really know what to do and say. Ah, thank you. Yes, yes, heard about you. And sort of uh, go on. But Tom was absolutely right, and that's what Tom would do. And Tom would always pick up the trash, even though he went, he worked into his seventies, and his back was no good. He would still stoop down and pick up every piece of trash. Why are you picking up the trash, Tom? This is my lab. I own this lab. It's all mine. I pick up the trash, and he's absolutely right. And if we want to not out of a sense of power and control, but to please our father and to play along with the the plan our father has for us. We're going to own this rule. We're going to own this world. Let's pick up the trash. Let's feed the poor. Let's feed the hungry and and, and take care of every service item that's needed. Let's deliver the mountain goats, so to speak. What then can I learn from my experience? So, uh, having concluded this study, it was a personal study at the time, although obviously I've shared it publicly now, I went back to my uh, ecclesia and I dug out, it didn't take very long, it's going to sound like this was a gargantuan task, but it wasn't. And I dug out all the calendars and, and schedules that we'd had for a decade, for the years 2001 through 2010, and I looked at every single meeting that we'd had, every memorial meeting, every Bible class, every committee meeting, every special effort, every fraternal, every goodness knows what, every Sunday school outing, and I said, well, there's at least one, every time we come together, we do so to do at least one, and usually more than one, of these six things. We're either declaring the gospel, studying the Bible, socializing, uh, taking bread and wine in memory of the Lord Jesus Christ, helping the poor, or praising God. And so there was more than, went into four figures, maybe about 2,000 data points, went into uh, how many uh, times we'd done each of these things, and I made a pie chart because that's what real science is all about. So, look, isn't that nice? And there it is. And that's how uh, our ecclesia, at least those outside of prison, uh, had been conducting themselves <laughs> over a 10 year period. So, you see, big fat chunk of yellow uh, studying the Bible, and red and green and blue are all socializing very important, I like that, and bread and wine. And praising, there was a fair chance. But orange was fairly slivered. I was surprised by that myself. But that is how it came out to declare the gospel. And the purple one, helping the poor. Can you see the purple there? It's right there. There's a little sliver. And out of something like 1,800 events, how many times had we actually come together as an ecclesia for the express purpose of helping the poor? And the answer in 10 years was, guess, two Thank you so much. Yes, we didn't quite hit that lofty height. Zero uh, was the answer. For the, um, sh- many of our brothers and sisters are wonderful and go off and do many charitable works. I'm talking about the times we've come together as an ecclesia deliberately designed. So for the year of 2011, in order to make a substantial difference, that was our activity. And that was actually, it doesn't look much different, does it? but it really was quite a difference, and we put some effort into having several, obviously I could hardly ever say many, several meetings deliberately coming together as an ecclesia for the express purpose of, amongst other things, helping the poor. So we got, we got the purple sliver off the ground, and that was a wonderful uh, exercise and a wonderful thing to be involved with. Uh, uh, the members of my ecclesia are, are very wonderful brothers and sisters, and I look up to them in that respect. The yellow one was perhaps slightly larger than most of the others. That seems to have got larger. I don't know how that happened, really. But um, what's the ideal distribution? I don't know. That's just an equal distribution. Is that the ideal? All six of these things seem very important when I think about them. So I wonder if that's sort of the sort of cheese pie chart that we should be aiming for there. But we're getting at least uh, some things growing um, in order to sort of get them off the ground. So that was a very practical way to put this uh, theoretical learning uh, into action. As a community, uh, as an ecclesia, as a community also, I think we're theologically very active. And that's right and proper, and it should be that way. We think about God. We don't just talk about God. We think about God. We communicate with God. We're theologically active. We learn new things about God. I do all the time, every time I look in the Bible almost, And in that sense, I kind of liken us to a university. And that's a good thing. That's a a praiseworthy thing. Uh, Our our community acts well as a university. But I wonder if, as well as a university, we should also have the ability to be a hospital, to be pastorally active, to take care of the broken, to bind up the brokenhearted, principally of our own members, but also uh, outside. So equally, I think we should be the ideal Ecclesia would perhaps be half university and half hospital. And I think we do very well at the university aspects, and I wonder how well we do at uh, the hospital aspects. Perhaps we need to be just a little bit more uh, active in our work there. How can I learn from my experience uh, in literal terms to give to the poor? That's just one idea, and that's the idea I've been following since that time. It's a bag. It's a gallon Ziploc bag, and into it goes water, food that will keep, aspirin, that's a toothbrush and toothpaste, there's other cleansing products there. There's a total of ten things in there, and I forget what there is. There's also a card from our church, at least giving our address where we meet. And I keep that. That will fit in the inside door pocket of a car. Most cars, just regular sedan car, you can shove that in the door pocket. Why? Because... I'm tired of being so hypocritical that I give talks like this and then when I'm driving along and I come to a traffic light, a stoplight, and there's someone begging on the side of the road and I do this appalling thing of I can't see you, which is just shocking and needs to stop. So from now on, uh, from back in a few years ago, there's always been these bags uh, that I make up. I make them up about 20 at a time. It costs next to nothing. And uh, then at least I can give that bag. So. You'd need to make one that was relevant to your circumstances. But in California, uh, water and sun cream, which I know is in there, are probably the two most essential things. Uh, because these guys who sit out and beg are absolutely fried. Their skin is complete leather. So you can tell they're not sort of you know just trying to pick up free cash and they've got somewhere to live. You can tell from their skin. They've been outside 24 hours a day for a substantial period of time. So there's just one little suggestion in practical terms, since we're trying to make this a practical talk, of what we can do to actually give to the poor in a meaningful way. How do I grow closer to, to God? Ruth said, increase in mercy. Spread your wings and learn how to fry. Jacob said, stop wrestling. Stop wrestling and trust the Father. And perhaps John the Baptist says, give to the poor.